Oh, good morning. Glad to see you all. We, we're starting a new series. If you're new here, it's typically how we teach. It just means it's going to take us more than one week to get through it. And uh, be four or five weeks on this topic called the Holy Spirit. You'll see the really clever title called the Holy Spirit and introduction because that's all you're going to be able to get in this next four or five weeks. Kind of a survey of who the Holy Spirit is. And it, it gets confusing, particularly if you're not a churchgoer or if you are, it doesn't really matter. This is a, a complicated topic. And we're going to try to work through it a little bit today and over the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to need you to come back, uh, give you a big overview today. Now, um, sometimes we refer to the Holy Spirit as uh, the Holy Ghost. You know, some of you know that one, and some of you are freaked out a little bit by that term because ghosts are scary, right? And you're like, oh, the spirit thing, it haunts us. And then, then it gets more complicated because uh, some of the language around this, particularly in the church, are things like getting slain in the spirit. I don't think any of us want to get slain. I don't know exactly what that, sound, what that is, but that sounds scary. Or another one is drunk with the spirit. Hmm? And you're going, yeah, I've never done that. I've been drunk with the spirits, but not with the spirit. That gets a little complicated. And so we've got all these different things to figure out. And we're going to try to figure out this role. And so here's kind of the, the big idea of the series, okay? Um, that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power that you're trying to tap into and create some kind of scenario where this power happens, right? It's not some impersonal power, but it's actually a powerful person. And not only is it a person, it's God. And that gets even more complicated. And then it gets even more complicated because we talk about God being in three persons. So get all sorts of stuff to sort through. But in order to sort through it, we got to go back to the beginning. And so that's what we're going to do today. And so here's the big question we got to figure out right now is, why are you here? Right? Not like in the room right now, not because you told your spouse you'd come, said you'd come a grandma, whatever it is, right? That's not what I mean about in the room. I'm talking about like, why do you actually exist? Like you're living, you're breathing, you, you're here. Like you're, you're actually material here. Like you're a real person. You matter. That matters, right? And so here you are, and so it makes sense that we figure out why you're here. No, this gets complicated because um, there's been lots of studies and exploration on how you got here and what happened to get us here. And I'm not talking about just your parents having kids. You know, I'm talking about like all the universe, sun, moon, stars, Jupiter, Mars, you know, those things. There's been a lot of studies on how that may have happened or what would have happened, but the question of why it gets uh, even more complicated, and there's not very many good answers outside of some religious worldviews, right? And so here's kind of, uh, I, I read this quote, it's been 15 years ago now, and honest, I don't know who to attribute it to. I have no idea now who said it. I read it somewhere. I can't find it anywhere on the internet. I can't even find the whole context for it, but the quote was this. It says, theology, by that we mean the study, theo, of God, right? The study of God. Theology is the crown jewel of all academics, okay? That maybe not mean much to you, but here's what that means, right? It means that when you search in any field of academia, right? All right, here, for example, let's, let's start with history, okay? So you start with history, and you start working backwards in history, right? Just keep going as far as you can, right? You eventually get to this place where you don't know anymore where those people came from. You follow, like, you might be able to follow, like, civilizations, get back to the Mayans, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going left, keep going left. But you get to a point where eventually you go, well, we don't know where those people came from. And then you have to kind of shrug your shoulders and go, I don't know, right? Science, the same thing. If we imagine how the universe got here, expanded all this mass and energy and all those things, there was a moment where none of that existed, and then there was a moment when all of it existed, right? There is nothing, and then there is something. And while we have some theories, two atoms bumping together, some kind of big bang, right? We have those theories. But even those, you go, well, where did those things come from, right? And the best explanation is, we don't know. 
right? Or here's, here's another one. Um, music, right? So you just heard lots of notes played, and they're all some kind of rendition of seven notes. Good boys do find always all cows eat, all, you know, all cows eat grass. You know, there's seven notes, sharps, flats, different octaves. I don't understand any of that stuff. You, some of you do. But there's only seven notes. And you go, well, where did those seven notes come from? Why is there not eight? Why can't you make a ninth, right? Eventually, you get to a point where you go, we don't know, right? Our colors, colors. We know all the colors. Uh, Roy G. Biv, you know, got the rainbow. All the colors you're seeing right now, for those of you who see color, right? All those colors you're seeing are some kind of formulation of those seven colors, those colors. Why can't you, why is there not more primary colors, right? At some point, you chase it all down to a point where you go, we don't know, right? And so the, the idea that theology is the crown jewel of all academics is this. When you search it down to its base level, math, science, history, music, any of the arts, right? When you ch trace it all the way down to its base level, you get to a place you go, we're not sure how to fill that gap. And what I would argue is God is the one who fills that gap. So if you're to imagine a will, that's W-H-E-E-L, not like what happens when you die, they read it and leave your kids some things. Like, I'm from the South. I don't say that word right. I don't say the word 10. That, when I say 10, I mean a number, not a piece of metal, right? And so, but a will, like a will with spokes. So you got a hub and spokes. What I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine all these spokes being all these different academic fields and where they all kind of hit that hub, the will, right? In that place, I would say that's where theology exists. So this idea that the church is anti-science or anti-academics is not true. Now, there's been some times in church history, particularly in modern church history, where uh, we've asked people to stick their heads in the ground and not ask any questions, really, really broken. But that is a really inappropriate way to handle and respond to God because God is the one who created all this stuff. It makes sense. Or if you could study science or math wherever you can to the deepest level, eventually what you're going to find is God. And that's where it gets more complicated because the God that we're talking about, now you might not agree with this and that's fine. I'm not trying to like uh, be manipulative or you know, beat you over the head or any of those kind of things. But the God we're talking about here, right, is actually even more complicated because when we talk about God, we're not talking about a God. We're talking about three gods, Right? So when you think about the Trinity, that's what we talk about in the, the Christian worldview. It's that there's a God and three persons. Now, be clear here. There's only one God, but there's three persons. But three persons equal one God. One God equals three persons. So there's actually three gods, but they're not three gods. There's one God. But it's not like this God with three different heads. It's three distinct persons. And see, that's really confusing, right? Really confusing. And now I've got to explain to you. And beyond that, it doesn't even say this in the Scriptures. The word Trinity doesn't show up anywhere. But we know this God exists in three persons. Let me tell you why this is really, really important. Um, most worldviews uh, that have a deistic approach, right? A God, which, by the way, when you trace down math, science, history, the best plausible explanation, okay? This is, uh, and I think science, scientists, brilliant minds, they say the same stuff here. The best plausible explanation is there is something bigger, greater than us that kind of set the course, Right? I mean, even if you read Stephen Hawking's, Richard Dawkins, email else rhymes with those words, right? Uh, um, they, they would have written something. Yes, in fact, one of them did. I said, um, for the universe to have started the way it did, there would have had to have been the perfect environment that would have had to have been chosen. You hear that word? Chosen implies a chooser, right? So even these brilliant minds go, we don't know. Maybe there's something more intelligent than us that designs it. And so there's some different worldviews that all talk about this God who could have potentially done all that, right? Now, most worldviews have either this polytheistic view or there's different gods who fight against each other. They're more in their own lane. 
That gets really complicated. But then there's the kind of the deistic one God who kind of sets this whole thing in motion. But this one God by himself really complicates things. So you can call him Yahweh, you can call him Allah, whatever you want to do there. But here's the problem when we think about the world starting with that one God. You go, well, why did he do it? Was he bored? So he just was sitting there all by himself and all by his lonesome and go, I'd like something else to do. So he created humans. Like, so we're like his little video game, right? Or maybe, was he insecure, right? Did he not um, feel appreciated? So he created a bunch of humans to appreciate him, right? And then we hear things like, but no, God is love. We talked about that, and it's beautiful, and it's true. But in that worldview where there is a God, that initiation isn't about love. It's about power, right? There was, when that God existed from the beginning of time, he was not a loving God. You want to know why? He didn't have anyone to offer that love to, right? So his first initiation was power and might. And then after power and might, maybe he created humans, and then he goes, oh, I guess I'll love them now, right? But that, and we see that in different worldviews, this merciful God who forgives. If you perform all the right rituals, do all the right things, then maybe he'll let you back in the club, right? Maybe give you access. But the first thing is he is perfect and mighty, and he makes, and then all of a sudden he goes, oh, I guess I'll, I'll dump my love on them now, right? So those gods, that, that idea of a singular God, right, doesn't start with love because it doesn't love in the beginning. No, this is, uh, stay with me, it's really worth your time, and then I'll, I'll flesh it out and show you some neat things with this. What's so unique about the Christian worldview is that before we ever existed, God existed in three persons, okay? One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you read Genesis, by the way, in uh, the Torah, the Quran, they also give a creation account. And actually, I have a hard time reconciling some of the stuff it says. Because in, in the account, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God, here we go, God, and we'll say three persons, but God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then it goes on and says, hey, here's the deal. The earth was um, void, form, without form. And it says, the Spirit hovered over the earth. So we see this moment there. And then it said, God spoke. And he said, let there be light. So we see this moment where God, in the beginning, he creates everything, right? So he is this God who creates all things. So he creates all things, and the way that he does it is he speaks it into existence. Now, there's smarter minds than me that would say, in those two verses, you see this three-person God. God the Father initiates it. God the Spirit is over the earth, and those words— what it tells us in John, in the New Testament, one of the people that followed Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And the Word made its dwelling among us. They go, yep, that's the argument for there's Jesus in the very beginning. Now, if you want to skip ahead a little bit further, uh, a little bit further down, 16, 18, Genesis 1, you know, a few verses down, it says this. So God creates everything, right? So he creates everything. He initiates it. And then at the end, he like, it's like he calls a meeting, and he pulls together the Godhead, and he says this. I mean, in every Torah, Quran, they have a hard time reconciling this, literally. It goes, God said, let us make man in our own image. So either God's schizophrenic, right, and talking to himself in third person, that, or he is actually talking, let us. That's, a, that's plural. So he's having some kind of conversation, and what he does here is he's going, God the Father, what we see in the scriptures, he initiates, an act of his will is this whole creation. In other words, the way that I would explain that is this. God called the meeting and decided to bring forth, he brought forth all creation. That's what God did. Now, why this is so important is you go, well, why in the world would that God do that? Well, it's different than every other worldview. 
Because this God existed in three persons from the very beginning. And in those moments where he existed, he existed with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here's what they had. They had a perfect relationship. Absolutely perfect. And guess what it had? Perfect respect, perfect mutual submission, perfect glory, perfect engagement, and perfect love. You see, when we look at this God, three-person God, right? He didn't need us because he was bored. He didn't need us so someone would glorify him. He didn't need us so he'd feel loved. He didn't even need us so he could share his love. All that exists far beyond when we show up, right? So all that, and the triune God gives us this picture that all that already existed. So you go, well, then why would he create us? Ah, that's really, really good. Because this God in perfect form, in this trinity, in this unity, they had infinite amounts of love, right? More than they could ever need, right? And so in this, what you see in this picture is you see this God who goes, we have, we have plenty to share, right? When you have plenty to share, when you cook too much food at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, you get something in the mail that's 10 times more than you thought it was going to be, whatever it is, what do you do with it? You don't throw it away, it's hard to throw it away, right? So you have to find someone to receive that extra food, that extra shirt, those extra socks, whatever that is, the extra toilet paper because you had a coupon, whatever it is, right? You have to do that because you don't want to just throw it away. You have extra, so what do you do with the extra? You share it. Now all of a sudden we have a better understanding of the God of the universe, perfect unity, perfect love, and in that, he decides to make that available. So what does he do? He creates mankind. Not because he had to, not because he was needy, but because he had infinite amount of love, an infinite amount of glory to display. And so he creates a human race that can see it and experience it. By the way, when John, one of Jesus' buddies, writes a letter to the church, he says something like this. It's so beautiful. He says, hey, beloved, that means he's talking to God's children. Hey, beloved, here's what he says. Let us love one another. Why? Because love comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Why? Because God is love. You see, this is the only worldview that explains from the very beginning that God is love. Every other one, it's a, it's a move of power, of might first, and then he might start sharing his love. In the beginning of this, in this triune God, there is love. So what does God do with it? He brings forth all creation. Why? So we could see and experience his love. If you're a parent, you get this, right? You decide to have children. And when you did, you understood that it wasn't because life was going to get easier. It wasn't because they were going to make things better for you. It wasn't your retirement plan, right? That wasn't the goal. It was you had love to share. And then after the first one, maybe you're like me and you're suspicious. Like, oh gosh, could I love another one the same I love my first one? And then what happens? It's like somehow your love increases when you have more kids. It's like, I have plenty of love to share. I didn't know I had that much to share. And then, you know, I, we had a third one. And the third one was adopted. And we're like, oh gosh, are we going to love this one with different DNA and genetics than our first two? And then we bring Sophie into our world. And guess what? I love her more than the other two. <laughs> right? Because she's cute and she's got good genetics. She doesn't have her dad's crazy brain. Right? And so, but I'm just joking. But like this idea of like this, this infinite love, that's how it all starts with God, which always leads to a really important question of that's what God is, and God is love, and that's why he created humans is to pour out his love and receive the glory from that, then why in the world don't we feel his love? 
really, really simple uh, explanation. The scriptures tell us this. So if the, if the Old Testament starts in Genesis, you got these books, 39 of them, different le uh, letters and books written by different people who kind of capture the story of God. And in that, what we see is that um, while God created the whole world, brought it forth. So if God brought in creation, what happens is we go, hey, God, we're not really that interested in your plan, right? Just to be honest with you, we're cynical. We're suspicious. Like, even me telling you about this three-person God, you're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. I'm going to just go eat some Cheerios and watch Sports Center, right? I mean, it's just like, it just, it hurts our head. And we're like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know. And since it doesn't make any sense, since we can't quite understand it, since we can't quite fathom it, since we can't wrap our mind around it, which you can't, because this is God we're talking about, what we do instead is we just go about our day and go, hey, we're just going to do our own thing. So if God brings forth creation as an act of his will, the fall, this broken part of our world, is an act of man's will. So here's how to explain it. If God brought man, I'm talking about mankind, if God brought creation, mankind fought it. We just basically said we like our plan better than yours, God. Maybe you did it co covertly. You didn't know God existed, so you just did your own thing the same way. It, or maybe it was overtly, you know, like maybe you literally go, I'm not interested in you, God. I like my own plan. And so what God goes, it goes, okay, okay. You want your own way? God takes a step back, removes himself from us and goes, you can have your own way. But you'll feel pain and sorrow because my protection, my provision, my covering will not be available to you. And frankly, we can look at our world and go, this is basically what's happening in our world all around us, in our own lives, right? And even if we don't, we don't believe in this God, this reality that we don't understand that we're created in God's image and loved by God and there's a plan that God offers us, most of the world has no, no clue. And we daily get up and fight the fight of just trying to fight through creation and fight through the day to just arrive at bedtime, right? And then eventually, end of our lives, arrive safely at death. And so this is the journey, which is a really sad one. This is what we're talking about. And yet, you look at our world, and this is it. We all know we were created. Not sure exactly how. And so right now, we're just trying to make ends meet, make do, until eventually it's over, right? And we look around our world and go, there's something off. But this is just a, the whole Old Testament tells the story. Now, what's really, really great, and you'll know this if you've ever been to church before, or just familiar with the church, is there's this big crescendo where all this changes, right? This, oh, God made us in his image. We don't feel it. We don't experience it. But there's, we feel like there's some hope out there, and this hope, there's this story. And it starts with this word, and it's called redemption, right? And I love the word redemption because it literally means bought back. That's what it means. And so the story of the Bible, you see it in the New Testament, starts with these four biographies about Jesus' life. And what they basically say is, hey, if God the Father brought forth this, and man fought against it, then what happens is the Son, God the Son, an act of his will, watch this, he, he buys us back, right? So if God brought, man fought, the son bought. And that's what the word means. And so the whole story of, of redemption is basically this. It basically goes, hey, uh, it starts with, starts with, you know, at the, the Christmas story. We've got these three big stories at church that if you come every now and then, you'll know them. The first one is Jesus was born. Pretty big moment because throughout history, there's this whisper that maybe God would make a way where there seemed to be no way. And there's all this pain and suffering. But throughout the Old Testament, there was this kind of this whisper that one day things would be made right. And there's this whisper of something called the Messiah or the Christ the one who would come and set things back right, right? And so if God, in an act of his will, brought forth creation, and man, in an act of our will, fought against it, then the son, in an act of his will, actually bought us back, right? And so the story starts with this baby, and people are like, is this the Messiah? Could this be the one? And then the next part of the story, we all celebrate kind of as a, a big checkpoint in the moments of, of time, is um, what we call Good Friday. You'd be familiar with it, right? It's so weird that we call it good, but this day that Jesus dies, 
right, is the day that God proves and demonstrates his love to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So remember that love, it's still here. It's still present. And so God models that, and we celebrate that, and we show it off, and we declare it, and we have this big moment where we talk about what Jesus did on the cross, the passion of the Christ. But then there's a third one, and this one's really important. So you got these markers in the church world. you got the birth, Christmas. you got the death, Good Friday, and then Easter. We like Easter a whole bunch, right? Because what happens there is God literally sends his son to prove his love. He buys us back by paying the price we should have paid, living the life we should have lived, right? So the wages of our sin, death, but the gift of God, the purchase of God is eternal life through Jesus, right? And so the third part of that is the resurrection. We love Easter because it goes, no, this is true. He actually did it. There's proof, and we can look back. There's all sorts of crazy proof, both in the scriptures and in the first century. It's crazy how the story goes. There is no tomb for Jesus. There is no place where you go and lay flowers and cry about your deity dying, right? There is no, there is no place like that because the resurrection basis, we don't have to grieve the founder of our religion dying. The religion didn't die. The founder didn't die because he came back to life. And we can look throughout the first century of this huge revival happening as a result of this resurrection. And so some, all of us spend so much time going, see, that's it, that's the story. If you'll just believe this, that God loved you so much that he created you in his image and likeness. And we messed it up. But Jesus buys us back. The end, can't you feel his love? But the reality is most of us don't. I'm gonna be really candid with you here. I rewrote this material probably four or five times this week because this part's really hard for me because it's going, cognitively, I believe all this stuff. Like, completely believe all this stuff. But if I were to be really, really honest with you, Oh, this is embarrassing. Like, I'm a professional Christian. I'm paid to stand up on stage and teach you this stuff, right? But if I were to be honest, when I think about this three-headed God monster, it gets really complicated. I'll go, okay, I'll believe it. But how that's actually fleshed out for me, how I've actually believed it, is this. I've actually, uh, that I've believed in God the Father. And this makes sense to me. Right, God the Father, yeah, God the Father, yeah, yeah, he's the one, he's brought it forward. And I know I'm wrecked, I know I'm a mess, so I get that. And I understand the need for a Savior. And I believe in God the Son, he's the one who does it. Like, the Son of God became Son of Man, so that sons and daughters of man could become sons and daughters of God. I get all that, I get it cognitively. But when I think about the Trinity, I think of God the Father, God the Son, and God's Word. This is how I've looked at it. Okay, this is how I understand this. Cognitively, I'll open up the Bible, I'll teach it to you because that's how I know these things. But it's not God the Father, God the Son, and God's Word. God's Word is not God, right? It points to God, and what happens is we spend all this time in celebrating. I go, see, I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus loves me. Even though I don't feel it, I know he loves me because he died for me. But no, no, no. In the beginning, he wired us to feel and experience his love. And I am guessing most of you don't. You know why? Because I'm a professional Christian, and most days I don't. You know, I get it. Cognitively, I know he loves me. But I don't experience and feel his love. And there's a reason for that. If we were to mark these three moments in Jesus' life, his birth, his death, and his resurrection, we are really missing out on a very, very important part of it. You see, there's another story in the Scriptures about Jesus' life, and what I would argue is it detonates all the good that's supposed to happen in this world. And it's called the ascension. It's the moment that Jesus goes back to the Father. And what he does is he sets off this, this movement, right? 2,000 years later, we are part of this movement. And the way we describe it is the restoration, right? There's this moment where God's going, no, no, no. We're going to restore this world to the way it was supposed to be. So this is creation 2.0. You follow me? Like, this is how it was supposed to be. And I go, yeah, I get it, I get it. Jesus loves me. I'm supposed to participate. If I do enough good, if I read the Bible enough, teach it enough, and all that will work. And it's going... No, 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 go with me. If creation was an act of God's will that brought it all forward, 
If the fall was an act of our will, that we fought against it, and redemption was an act of the Father's or the Son's will to buy us back, then how do you think restoration happens? Whose will is that? And this is so important for you to understand the role of the Trinity, right? The role of the Holy Spirit. If restoration is going to happen, if you're going to feel God's love, if you're going to be used in His might and experience His peace, it only is going to come through the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the big idea, and I'm going to read some scriptures to help you understand this, right? It is better, and this is not blasphemy. I've worked through it enough to feel very comfortable saying this now. It is better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than just have Jesus beside of you, okay? Better to have this Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. And I know that seems so with your own. Stay with me over the next couple weeks. We'll be worth time. It's better to have this inside of you than just have Jesus beside you. And what we know is the ascension tells us this. Here's what it is. Like, if God brought forth it, man fought against it, Jesus bought us back, then what the Holy Spirit has done is sought us out and sought us and brought us into his world. And so Jesus is going to help us understand this. And so it's so needed. We've got to look at the ascension. And so there's, I told you, there's kind of Old Testament tells us this story with whispers of this story. The gospels tell this story. Like Jesus came and redeemed us. And then um, one of the gospel writers, so these four biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of them, my favorite, just to be honest with you, is I'm not a touchy-feely type of person. I like facts. I like evidence, like those things. Is a, a writer by the name of Luke. Luke was a scientist and doctor paid by a guy named Theophilus to go find out if this is true. So literally, he gets a research grant. These are real people. This is not some folklore, myth, or legend. There's a real person named Luke. He's hired. He's a hired hand to go investigate the story of whether or not Jesus really did this. So Luke is paid by this guy named Theophilus to find out if Jesus' story is real. So what does he do? He's a good investigative journalist, and he goes to eyewitnesses. He doesn't go to hearsay. He goes to people who actually saw and felt and experienced Jesus. We're at the tomb when Jesus was put in. We're at the tomb when it was open and he wasn't there anymore. We're with Jesus when people touched the scars on his hands. That's what Luke did. And he was so moved by the story, he doesn't end it in Luke. He decides to write another book. I don't know if he asked Theophilus for an upgraded grant, a research fellowship. I don't know, but he decides to write another book, and it's called the book of Acts. And Acts is the story of what happens when this whole scene, when this whole creation 2.0, restoration, gets detonated. And so he starts where that detonation happens, where this, where this is about the spread, like the, like the opposite of a virus. Same kind of spread, but all good. And he's going to start when it, it starts, and the ascension, when Jesus is about to go into heaven. What's so neat about this is in Luke chapter 24, he kind of finishes with this story. And then Acts chapter 1, he picks it up again. So if you've seen Back to the Future, you know how this works, right? Back to the Future 1 ends, but then when you go to Back to the Future 2, it kind of like rewinds five minutes and you see it again, right? And so what he's doing here is he's going to tell the story that he told in Luke 24, again in Acts chapter 1. He's going to say, look, you've got to see this. This is like pressing the button, pressing the detonation button that's going to change everything across the globe for all generations and for all eternity. And so let me read it to you. This is Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And this is Luke writing. And here's what he says, and it is beautiful. So pay attention with me. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So hey, I write this book. Thanks for the grant. I write about all that he did to teach. Until the day he was taken up into heaven. Remember, birth, death, resurrection, ascension. Huge part of the story that the church misses a lot, right? He was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through, there it is, 
the Holy Spirit, really important here, so beautiful. Well, won't get to spend a lot of time this week. We'll do it later. That word spirit there is the word pneuma, right? And it is the same word that they would use and translate differently in Hebrew for breath. means to breathe. No, 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 go with me here for just a second. When God initiated this plan, infinite love, infinite glory, share it with the world. He actually forms the whole world, creates the perfect incubator, creates the perfect environment for mankind to enjoy everything about it, right? And then he, and the culmination of that, he decides to make humankind. And the first person he forms is Adam, right? And you go, that's so strange. It's hard for me to believe. And I'm like, it's all complicated. But come up with a better scenario, right? Two atoms bumping together and an actual Adam laying on the ground, right? So what happens here is a God forms this, this man. And this isn't like a, a baby. This is a full-grown man. I don't know if he's 20. I don't know if he's 30. I don't know if he has a belly button. I don't know any of that stuff. Now, by the way, this is a mature man in a garden with mature trees. I'm going to explain. There's all sorts of complications of how he wrestled through scientific carbon dating and all that kind of stuff. And I, there's lots of confusion about that. I just would say this, just because it's worth pointing out, that there is a mature man with mature trees on day one. Right? So how old was that man? Is he a baby? Or is he a grown man? How old was that tree? How many rings were inside of it? You follow me? So this is a mature world already created. And he creates Adam and he's laying on the ground. And hear me, Adam is lifeless. This is so crazy. Before Adam was alive, he was dead, right? So here he is, this grown man, perfect shape, all this kind of thing, probably has abs, you know? And he's laying there without a belly button. So strange, right? And he's laying there and he is, he is dead, completely dead and naked, just laying there, Right? And then all of a sudden, God is about to initiate creation 1.0. And how does he do it? It says he breathes breath into Adam's lungs. Like, breathes into him. And all of a sudden, life starts. So that's how it works, right? If the way that this whole thing got initiated, if that happened, creation 1.0 was with breath, then wouldn't it make sense that creation 2.0, that the restoration would also start with the same thing? So Jesus is literally saying there's going to be this holy breath the Spirit. So, uh, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who were chosen. Now, watch what it says next. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, right? Touch me, see my scars, all those kind of things. Look at the dead people that were dead now walking around. Lots of stuff going on here. He, uh, uh, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Hey, let me tell you about this kingdom with perfect love, perfect grace perfect mercy. This beautiful kingdom that God established in the beginning, and the Spirit is going to reestablish through you, right? Let me tell you about this. God, he talks about this kingdom that God was establishing. And on one occasion, watch this, while he was eating with them, he gave them a command. He says this, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. So they're in Jerusalem. This is like um, the Mecca for Jews. Like this is, this is like the capital for these folks. This is where the, this first round where they didn't really understand the spirit. They didn't understand the role of the Christ where, where 1.0 started. So this is like foundational. We're all this guy going in this, this worldview. And he's going, no, no, it's not one. It's three, three and one. And, and so he, he's saying, but here's the deal. We're about to initiate, detonate creation 2.0, restoration. And so, but you got to understand this. It is far beyond your capability. So, hey, guys, if you're going to lean into your own might, your own power, even my word, that's going to be it for you. You're going to fail. And you're going to fail miserably. And you're going to wonder if you're loved. You're going to wonder if it's about your performance. You're going to wonder if you're the one who earned your salvation. You're going to wonder if, there, if you can lose your salvation. You're going to wonder if I really care about you. Because this is a, this 
Creation 2.0 is so beyond your capability that it is only going to be able to happen with my power, the same power that breathed life in Adam, that spoke the world into existence. That kind of power, that's what you're going to need to reestablish this because this kingdom is far greater than you can ever imagine. So he says this to them. He says, don't leave. Don't get started on yourself. And they're like, they put down their water guns because they're about to go chase into hell with them. And they're like, oh, not yet. Be patient, right? Because this thing, far beyond your capability. But he says, uh, uh, do not leave but until you get the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of complications about this. Imagine what this means. And we think about baptism in terms of the religious sense. Like we actually had three baptisms, or two baptisms and a baby dedication during the first service. And we do all sorts of modalities or modes from sprinkling to immersions. And so I don't want you to get caught up in those things, right? This isn't how do you join a church or how do you get saved or all those complicated there. This literally means just to dip in, okay? So he goes, you're going to be dipped, immersed, covered, consumed, right, by this Holy Spirit. So you're going to be blanketed by this thing. So this is what's going to happen. Then verse 6 says this. Then they gathered around him. They hear all this, and watch what they say. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You see this? They're still dealing with their nationalism. Oh, God, are you going to fix our politics? God, are you going to legislate some change to these guys? Because there's a lot of people voting on the left side. or a lot of people voting on the right. This is how you're going to solve that. And he's going, ah, that's so short-sighted. I'm not talking about your national kingdom. I'm talking about this worldly, this universal God's kingdom. But he says this. He goes this. He said to them, man, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Hey guys, this isn't about that. God's got a plan for creation 2.0. You can just wait and it's going to be good and watch what happens next. But you will receive power. Okay, it's really important. That's the Greek word that uh, like dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. So there's like this real power. And this is where it gets dangerous, right? Because when we talk about this, one of the things we talk about so often is that's kind of what, a lot of people are really interested in that. I want that power. I want to see dead people come back to life, right? I want to see those things. I want to, I want to see that kind of power. And so a lot of the questions about the Holy Spirit are, how do I gain access to that power? There is a power that you do get, but that's not priority right now, okay? We'll get there. That is not priority number one. It's figuring out how you do some supernatural, magical stuff, okay? That's not, that's not the goal here. He's saying, you're going to get my power, but there's a reason you're going to get the power. Really important here, right? Why don't you see what it says? You will get this infilling, this indwelling of the Spirit, but there's a very specific reason you will get it, right? But you will see my power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses. People got to know the story. People got to know that there's a God who had infinite love for them, and that he is doing everything. He's moving everything and bending and shaping everything to get his children back. Infinite love. He loves his children. Wants them back around the table, right? There is this, this story that this Holy Spirit is going to tell to God's people. And by the way, you see what it says here? It says, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That verse right there is the only reason we get to sit in this room right now. You might not believe it yet. That's fine. I, I wrestle with it too. But we're to the ends of the earth, guys. 2,000 years ago, Jesus made this promise that there would be witnesses with his power who would take this message forever. There is nothing like it. There's no organization in the world like the church with his power. Now, I'm talking about Little C Church. I'm not talking about the building with the mortgage. I'm talking about this movement. He's going, no, no, no. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can thwart it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still seeing this thing. We've seen empires fall. We've seen all sorts of mess. But there are people of every nation and every tongue and every tribe who are seeing this movement. So this is a 
global movement. He's going, it only happens with that power. And then he continues, really, really important. He goes this, he says, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus literally goes into heaven like that. You, and so you, you've done this, right? Or you've seen it. Like you, your kid got one of those helium balloons. You don't know why someone offered them. You didn't want them to be offered it, but it's too late now. The kid has it. And what's going to happen inevitably is it's going to come off their wrist and it's going to go into the sky and they're going to scream and cry, right? So um, you've seen it and then you just stare there and the kid just stares at it as it just goes into the sky to ruin our ozone layer, right? Just goes right there and you just stare and you watch it, watch it as far as it goes. So these guys, Jesus is going into heaven. They're just standing there. They're just watching him. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. So here's what we know. This is really nice. We know that this story happened before Labor Day, right? You see that there? Because there are two men dressed in white. Got that for sure, right? And so they're there. They're looking up, and Jesus just leaves. Their buddy, their best friend, the one that they left their jobs for, everything else. He just leaves. Now, we know the rest of the story, but could you imagine that for them? This guy they devoted their life to the one that they've clung to. Like, this seems inappropriate. This seems a lot like abandonment, right? He just leaves. He just leaves, right? And these two guys in white, they show up, and they offer kind of this soft rebuke. If you read verses 12 and 13 later, you'll see it. But just the last verse I want to read here, and it says this, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So he goes, Hey, he's coming back. So Jesus leaves. Jesus leaves. So this is really interesting. Like, essentially what he's doing here, and this is kind of funny, I think about it, like, it's kind of like he's breaking up with them a little bit. He's saying stuff, and he's doing all, he's saying all the right stuff. It's not you guys, it's me, you know. Look, God told me to do it, whatever it is. And, but could you pain us? Because I was thinking about, like, just would have loved Jesus, like, to have had some really, those corny, cheesy Christian breakup lines. And then triggered some emotion in me. Nothing about the sermon, but I'll, I'll share. Um, I was thinking about the first time I had, like, a, like the first time I experienced that kind of breakup, right? That kind of abandonment. I was in fifth grade and shouldn't have had a girlfriend. Way too young for that. But I was at a, a lock-in um, at a skating rink, right? And this is going to be my big moment because I was going to couple skate for the first time. I don't know if you know what that is. That's where you and your girlfriend, you hold hands and you skate. And I'm a terrible skater to this day. If you put me on roller skate, I, I keep one foot planted the whole time, right? This foot stays down and I just do this right here. Just do this right here. I just go all the way around, all the way around. Unless it's the other way, then I do this right here, right? That's it. That's all I can do. I, I hate it. I'm scared to death. But this is my moment. I was going to hold Annie's hand and we were going to couple skate to she's in love with the boy over yonder coming up the road and it's beat up you know, no, okay. so we're there and so I'm really excited about this moment fifth grade lock in and the song comes on I'm like this is my moment and I <laughs> stumble over to Annie and I'm like you want to skate right this is my girlfriend right this is a pretty big deal and she looks at me and she says Johnny's a better skater than you no you know Johnny right Johnny's in the mesh jersey got the mustache and he's all buttoned up here but there is a party going on back here you know what I'm saying like that and he, he skates like this, right? So it's fair that Annie didn't want to skate with me because I would have been like this. And Johnny can look at her eyes and do all that kind of skating. But she literally looked at me and said, Johnny's a better skater than you. And I sobbed, just sat there and sobbed. And I had to find a quarter so I could use the payphone to call my parents and come get me from the lock-in because Annie wouldn't skate with me, right? So Jesus literally, <laughs> he, just, he just leaves them. And if we don't understand the whole story, they don't understand the whole story then, it seems pretty inappropriate. So, you got to figure out a couple things. Why in the world does he leave? And by the way, he's been gone 2,000 years. So what has he been up to? Not going to solve all that today. Not going to solve all it today. But we can at least get a glimpse to why he leaves. Again, this is a detonation that happens. And so, we know how he left, or why he left, very specifically, because 41 days earlier, 
before Jesus does this, he is sitting with his disciples. Now, this is pre all the drama that's about to happen, right? He's about to get arrested. He's about to get brutally murdered on a cross. He's going to be put in a tomb. There's going to be devastation. There's going to be earthquakes and all sorts of mess. Then he's going to come back to life. There's going to be this huge party. And then Jesus is going to get back to work for 40 days, teach on this. So 41 days, skip ahead before any of the drama happens. All of it. No, no, no. They don't expect it yet. Before the, you know, Good Friday, before all those things, Jesus is sitting in an upper room with his disciples. And this is what you know about the Last Supper. It's called the Last Discourse that John, one of Jesus' buddies who's in the room, captures. And he tells us what Jesus tells them in that moment, right? And so he pauses, and he explains to them that he's about to leave. This is the breakup. Hey, guys, I'm about to go back to my father, but it's good that I'm going, right? You've had, you know, it's good. And they don't understand that it's good, and they're, they're freaking out. And in John chapter 14, he pauses, and he says, hey, 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 don't let your hearts be troubled, guys. Believe in God, believe also in me. So he's going, no, no, this is good. It's good. And they don't understand it's good. And then he says this, and this is, it'd be so easy to miss. And he goes this, he goes, hey, hey, in my father's house are many rooms. And I'm going there, he's been there 2,000 years, to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Now, it'd be really easy to miss this because we don't understand Jewish culture. But in Jewish culture, in that moment, um, what they would have understood and experienced and known is that that, that's a pretty common language, to go prepare a place for you in your father's house. Because if you were to get married, if you were a Jew and you were to get betrothed or engaged, you would figure out, you'd make the dowry, you'd exchange the cows, all that kind of stuff, and there'd be kind of this moment where you'd go, this is going to be my wife. But you wouldn't get married then. But what happened next is you would go back to your father's house, right? And you'd build onto the compound. You'd have to literally either build a house next door, build a house onto the compound, and... When that house was built, when that room was built, when it's finally finished, what would happen is they would create this big parade where the, the groom and all those groomsmen would go get the bride to go have this beautiful festival, huge celebration to celebrate this wedding and the wedding. That moment would have been finalized with this thing called consummation right? You still know it. Still the same thing. Still the same deed. All that kind of stuff. But when we talk about the story of the God, this story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, it doesn't end with restoration. In fact, restoration points to one day this bigger, more beautiful word called consummation. And in consummation, it's this. If creation is where it was, the fall was what messed it up, uh, redemption is how Jesus brought us back, and then restoration is how this gets ignited, the word that I would use here because it rhymes, and because I'm Southern, and we use this word a lot, um, is ought, right? It was the way that things should be. You follow me? This is the way it was supposed to be. Remember, in the beginning, God the Father was here with God the Son and the Spirit, and things are perfect, and they get, though, we want to invite them to the table. want to invite them to the table, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Why? Because where I am, my Father— with the Spirit, I want you to be also. So this is kind of the, the finalization of creation 2.0. And that won't happen yet. Then that will happen when Jesus comes back. And so Jesus is going, I'm going to go do that, but now's not the time. And then he tells what's going to happen until this moment happens, right? The moment when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit and us, we all dwell together. And then he's going to tell us, this is what's going to happen next. So he goes and he explains this to him. And watch what he says here. John chapter 14, verse 15. So he's given instructions and he says this. If you love me, keep my commandments. No, keep my commands. So, hey, guys, you're going to get distracted. You're going to want to do the wrong thing. You're going to want to flee. You're not going to feel peace. You're going to be anxious, and you're going to want to cope and, you know, self-medicate. You're going to do all these things. But trust me, keep my commands. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Really important. That means Jesus is also an advocate. That's pointing to what Jesus does when he goes to heaven. He, sit, uh, he ascends to the throne, right? There, people still do that. Like you can, in England, you can walk up steps to ascend to the throne. I don't think uh, Megan and Harry are allowed to do that anymore, but some people can't, right? And so you ascend and go to the throne. And so there's this moment like that. There's this beauty of Jesus goes back and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one of the things he says to us as an advocate, that word advocate means like a, lots of words, help, helper, a guide, depending on, um, but one of them that used there is counselor, but not like just a counselor across the couch, but like a, a counselor in law. This is the person who represents you. This is the person who represents you in court. So this is the person, Jesus is going, I'm gonna give you another advocate, because I'm gonna be in heaven, I'm gonna be your advocate, and I'm gonna sit next to dad, and I'm gonna tell him he's gotta acquit you. You don't have to pay the pain and to pay the sorrow. That's what it says in 1 John. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. That's a courtroom term. So he said, I'm going to be up there. I'm going, but you're going to get another advocate. You're going to get another counselor that's going to come and be with you to help you. And watch this. Be with you forever. That's what he says. And then in verse 17, it says this. The spirit of truth. So he's going, I will need you to know this. That this spirit, this Holy Spirit, will be with you forever. And it will speak nothing but truth. Nothing but truth from God, from Jesus to you. Nothing but truth. And it will speak nothing but truth from you back to God. Right? This counselor does two things. It speaks to us on behalf of the Father. And it speaks to the Father on behalf of us. In fact, in Romans 8, it says, even we don't know what to say, the Spirit is interceding for us. Right? Speaking. And this is what it says next. Uh, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. So this is really, really important here because this is why I think a lot of us struggle is we think, okay, Jesus loves us, but we don't know how to experience his love. It's because the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you, right? The way by which you experience this love, this outpouring of love is actually from the spirit. Now he's gonna explain it even more. He says this, guys, I won't leave you as orphans. This isn't me abandoning you. I'm actually going there and when you're gonna do it, you're gonna think I'm abandoning you, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Creation 2.0. We're detonating it here. I'm going to the Father, and everything's about to start. On that day, watch this. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me. And I am in you. So here's what he's saying. See, there's going to be this moment. What you're going to discover in this consummation is, what the way it ought to be is the Father is going to be there, Right? The Father's going to be there as an act of his will. He's going to submit himself to his Son and the Spirit. And the Father and the Son, right? The Father and the Son and the Spirit will all be there. On that day, you'll get that. On that day, there'll be a day where all this will be the case, right? All that will be there. And guess what? On that day, like it was supposed to be in the beginning, you're going to be invited to the table, right? You're going to also be able to be there. So this consummation is where all this comes back to perfection. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're all communicating, and guess what? That doesn't happen when you get to heaven. What Jesus said, on that day, what's going to happen is this, this trinity of folks is going to be here. The Spirit is going to speak to you on behalf of the Son, reminding you what the Son did for you. The Spirit's going to speak to you on behalf of the Father, remind you how valuable you are. And this Spirit's going to speak to the Son on behalf of you, saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. And this Spirit is going to speak on behalf of us to the Father, telling us, God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for this. And there's just going to be this reminder. He's going to, on that day, 
It's going to be perfect, right? On that day, you'll realize, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And then in verse 25, it says this. All this I've spoken to you while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Now watch this. And the Spirit's going to come, and it's going to speak to you. 2.0 is going to get detonated. And he says this. But watch this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives you. I do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And let's just be honest. As I think about this world and I think about the complications of it, I think this verse just points out exactly what's going on in my life, okay? So I get this. I get that Jesus died for me. I get that he loves me. I get that he paid the price that I deserve to pay. He lived the life I should have lived, all that kind of stuff. But it is hard for me to really go, but I feel experientially that love, right? I guess I'm guessing some of you are there, right? You believe it, maybe cognitively, but you don't feel it, right? Because that's the role of the Spirit, not the role of the Scriptures, not the role of Jesus. This is the role of the Spirit to help you feel it. And Jesus tells you there's a way by which you can define that. And here's the word. Peace. To be honest, how many of you feel peace? And, there's no judgment in the world, but if we were to pause and look at it, I think we'd be really pretty candid here to go, this word right here, it's absent in our world right now, right? You can even go back 10 years or 20 years, whatever it is, and you go, something has changed. Where the word that we describe our world and the people in it, including us in this room, is not peaceful but anxious, right? And so there's this, this presence of anxiousness, and that anxiousness comes from a lack of security, right? And we have, there's all sorts of things we can figure out and go, it's fatherlessness, it's, it's you know, all the different progression in our world. There's all sorts of stuff to say, but I would say at its base, hear me, hear me. That absence of peace is in direct correlation and causation of the absence of the Spirit. And so what Jesus is telling us is there is actually peace available to you. You don't believe it, maybe. I have a hard time believing it. It's not going to be found in memorizing just the Scripture. It's not going to be found in cognitively getting that Jesus died for you. It's not going to be found in just confessing your sins, right? It's going to be found in having God's presence in you, right? Remember, God had infinite love, and you go, how does he distribute that love? He shows it through Jesus, but he distributes it through the Spirit. See, we're all talking about the Spirit and its power, we're going, but at, at its base level, this Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit is the medium by which God pours out his love for you. If you don't feel his love, it's because you're not experiencing his Spirit. Because Jesus is going, no, no, I'm going to give it to you. Now watch this verse 28. Here's what he says. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back for you. One day this all back. But if you love me, if you understood this, if you understood the Trinity, if you understood this, if you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. Be glad I'm going to the good Father, for the Father's greater than I. So we'll get to work through this in the next several weeks. But what he's saying here is, it is, this is good news for you guys, because Jesus stepped on this planet. He stepped into our time and space. You know what that meant? That means he was exactly where he was. Wherever he went, that's where he was. But guess what that meant? Wherever he wasn't, he wasn't. You follow me? Real profound, right? He was where he was, and he wasn't where he wasn't, right? Just like us. So Jesus put on human flesh, put on the limitations of human flesh, right? He was where he was, and he wasn't where he wasn't. And he's going, but that's not enough for you. Like, you're not going to live in this world without my presence with you always. So you're going to be sad that I'm going to go, but you should, one day you're going to be really glad when you get this. Because when I go back to the Father, and be sitting with him, and you're going to get another one just like me with all the love and all the mercy and all the grace and all the wisdom. And that's going to be my spirit in every single one of you. Get that. It's going to be better for you to have the spirit inside you than me sitting beside you, right? And so this moment, he goes back to the Father and he gives us this beautiful gift 
that very few of us, if any of us, have tapped into. So if you don't feel loved, it's because you aren't aware of what the Spirit is telling you about yourself and about your Father and about His plans He has for you. And they're all good. So what we're going to do the next three or four or five weeks, right, is just ask God to make His Spirit really known to us. Because it's there. If you believe this and have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, His Spirit is in you. But we have been so consumed by everything else in this world that we have lost sight of it. And that's not condemnation on you. I'm just saying the reality for me is I get God the Father and I get God the Son, but let's figure out the Spirit together and perhaps, perhaps everything changes for us. Perhaps that peace you're looking for and that love you're looking for is really available to you. And yeah, we can talk about the power and all the neat things we might see, but that's after receiving this love and grace that's available to you from the very beginning that he's going to restore. So what's going to happen is we're going to sing this hymn that just talks to us about the Spirit, and we're going to be reminded that so the band's going to come up and lead us in it. But what I want to do as, as they do it is I want to tell you a quick story. Some of you might be familiar with a guy named Dwight L. Moody. Um, big awakening and revivals happened in our nation, and one of them, he's actually from, I think, western uh, Pennsylvania, but went out to Chicago and was involved in these massive revivals where he'd stand up and declare this good news of the gospel, and people were like, coming to faith. And all of a sudden, the Spirit was like connecting the dots. And people were going, oh my goodness, that is how it happens. Yes, we are fallen. Yes, there is redemption. Yes, there could be restoration. And there would be this big movement in all these folks. But he was a little tired and got a little exhausted and uh, needed a respite and felt like he wasn't understanding the Scriptures real well. And so what he did is he took kind of a sabbatical and he went off to England, not for long, a week or two. And he had taken a boat and a plan on going over there kind of to study some of these great English preachers of the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was, he was there and he was like in some men's Bible studies breakfast. And one of the people there recognized him as Dwight L. Moody from the States who did these big, um, these big revivals. And he said, please, 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 would you please teach in my church, right? True story. And Dwight L. Moody said he was cautious, but finally said, okay, I'll do that. And so he, um, he, uh, the next Sunday he stood up in front of a congregation and he preached. And he preached his heart out, sweaty, like just sweaty and preached. And, and he said the people just stared at him. He said it was just cold and frozen, right? And they weren't laughing, which hurts our hearts, guys. You've got to laugh more, right? And so, and he said it was just cold, right? And he just looked at them, and he called them to this good news of a great God and called them to repentance, to change the way they think, and surrender their lives to Jesus. And they all just kind of stood at him, stared at him. And he prayed the last, prayed the prayer, prayed and left and told him never going back there. And then he remembered that he'd already committed to come back that night. So he shows up that night, same crew, hundreds of people in the audience just staring at him. And he's preaching and he's preaching and preaching. And he says, all of a sudden they start leaning in and engaging a little bit more. And then at the end he's like, I think they are going to get this. They're going to get the gospel. And he thought, I'm going to, I'm going to call them to more than just raising their hand. And he said, listen, if you're ready to follow this God life, invite the spirit in you and go chase after the kingdom, creation 2.0, restoration, then stand up. And he said, all over the room, people stood up. And he's like, are these the same people? And, he's like, and then he told them to sit back down. He's like, no, 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 sit back down. You obviously don't know what I'm talking about. So then he preached at them a little bit longer and made sure they understood what, it, what the cost was and what he did. And he invited them to stand up again. And he said, more people stood up. And he's like, these, are, wait, these people were so, you know, indifferent that morning. So he sat them back down. And he said, no, 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 listen. I don't even want to do that. Next time I tell you to stand up, don't stand up. Go into this room and we'll have a conversation in this room. And if you really want to do this. And so all these people stood up and followed him into this room. And he gets in this room and he's like, who are you people? He's like, no, no, this can't be. How about you go sleep on it? Because I saw you this morning. So go sleep and come back and you can meet your pastor here tomorrow night. And then what set off is about a four or five, 10, 15 day revival where more and more people came back to this New Court Congregational Church in England. 
more and more people. And so D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, gets this telegram from the pastor saying, hey, something crazy's happened. And so he couldn't understand it. He's like, what in the world's going on? Like, I've had these experiences. I've never seen anything like that. So he starts investigating it. And after lots of research and investigation, he found this girl, this girl who was basically an invalid. She was stuck in a hospital who read preacher magazines of all things. And she got this preacher magazine from the States in 1972, 72, and she was reading it. And she read this article about Dwight L. Moody. And she knew that the Lord needed to bring him over to her church. And so she was praying it. A couple years. And then on that morning after the service, one of the people left the church service and went and visited her in the hospital. And that girl goes, how was church? And she was like, yeah, some, some Yankee came over and preached at us, right? And she's like, who was it? And they told him. And she pulled out the article. And she's, she, literally, the, the, the nurse was bringing her food. And she's like, I can't eat. And she fasted and was just praying. And she just kept praying and praying, God, would you pour out your spirit on my church family? Would you just pour it out? Like, would it just be so evident that you've done something? And that's the story behind the story. And Dwight Moody said he never, ever saw the Holy Spirit the same. Never saw that power and that love and that might and that care and that grace that the Spirit wanted to make available to all people to restore what was broken, to bring us all back into fellowship and relationship. And so he completely changed the way he preached. In fact, he comes back to England and spends a lot of time over there preaching. That wasn't the original plan. As a result of this person that's going, hey, Holy Spirit, would you please do what only you can do? And I just would invite you over the next several weeks. Maybe this is new for you. Maybe you don't even believe it yet. Maybe you're like me and you're like the, the, you know, you're like the concrete and the tangible. But could we? Could we just say, Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? And would it be so evident that it's you doing it, that you get all the credit? And we see this creation 2.0, this restoration of our world. And can we live in it until the moment that you come back and get us? And can we have that kind of fellowship with you and one another? And I think that's possible. So I want you just to kind of sing. If you don't know the words, just stare at these words and go, Holy Spirit, would you be that in our lives? And then come back next week expectantly going, no, the Spirit's real and active, and He loves us, and He wants us to give us His power to fill His love and do His work. And so I'm going to just invite you to stand with me as we sing this song together and conclude. So would you stand? Would you guys lead us? Spirit, guide my hearing, wake my ears to words. 
just want to invite you that if you're interested in prayer, if you're looking for uh, some connection or, or anything like that, we would love to kind of partner with you. Um, if we can assist in that, please come talk to us. Any of the staff members, we'd love to kind of get you connected. Maybe if you're not looking to maybe talk to somebody, but you do have a prayer request that you would like prayed over, if you just want to write that on the back of the bulletin and drop that in the offering plates as you make your way on out. Um, speaking of the offering plates, there will be some people there. So if this is your first time with us, please don't feel any obligation to give. That is for our regular attenders and our our uh, regular members here at the church. If you're visiting, please don't feel any obligation. Uh, we're trying to wrestle through giving God our, our best and giving him our all. So as we're trying to be honoring of God with our finances, that's what that's about. So there's no pressure. Don't want anybody to ever feel that. If you are looking to get connected, I would love to meet you. I'll be over at the info center. We do have kind of a free t-shirt that we would love to give you if you're looking to kind of get connected to get kind of the, that next steps. Um, I'd love to be able to talk to you out there, but we're so glad that you're with us this morning. We hope that you were challenged and encouraged, and we hope that as you go from this time in this place that God's presence goes with you. So have a great week, and we hope to see you next week.